today on City Cash Chicago. With three finalists under consideration for the city's first casino, some residents are concerned about increased gambling in the neighborhoods. But make no mistake, there's already plenty of legal gambling happening all over the city, in gas stations and corner stores. The Illinois Lottery Mega Millions jackpot is currently $370 million. That's a whole lot of cheddar. Long before the lottery was legal, thousands were playing an identical game across Chicago known as policy. In fact, the big money being made in that game helped build Bronzeville into the black metropolis. It's Wednesday, April 20th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. Blake is happily scratching an instant ticket from the Illinois Lottery. Dream all you want, but no one ever won lotto without a ticket. Enjoy someone with holiday scratch-offs from the Illinois Lottery. Who knows, they might join you back. What's the deal? Mr. Mack, pick and play poker. Just pick a play card, I scan it and give you a pick and play ticket. Match them up on the spot to win. Have a ball. Play the lottery today. Ads like this have been everywhere since the state created the lottery nearly 50 years ago. Well, the lottery that you know of today between the pick threes, the pick fours, the mega millions and so on and so forth is literally lifted from the game of policy. Some of the same rules and regulations are in place now as what was in place as early as 1885. Charles Bethea is from the Chicago History Museum. Policy, which is called probably because the numbers runners or the people out on the corners and so forth, you know, pushing the notion of this is an opportunity for you to make some real money um, as an insurance policy. It's not really gambling. You're buying an insurance policy. Oh, okay, so that's how they talked about it. That's most likely where the name policy came from. However, people would be able to play um, numbers for anything where between one cent to a nickel. The payout was upwards to 10 to one. So anyone that was putting that one cent or a nickel down on a set of numbers could get that back tenfold. So this was an opportunity to, quote, unquote, get rich. You could um, choose a combination of numbers, and it was any number between 1 and 78. I imagine the pick three still remains super popular because, I mean, my grandfather would play all our birthdays. He'd play everybody's exactly. birthday in the house, right? 4, 30, 91, uh, 3, 27, 71. My grandfather loved him a, a good pick three. To this day, he talk about hitting his numbers. Uh, you know, as policy grows in popularity throughout the turn of the century, you know, how big of a deal was it in Bronzeville during the early 1900s? Oh, it was huge. As a matter of fact, I mean, think about it like this. There was no real economic money falling or flowing into the Black community in Chicago. Exactly. But what was flowing was gambling, was policy. I grew up uh, with the numbers, the policy system with my mom, my uncles, uh, neighbors. And um, I saw it as a means of surviving. Beatrice Hardy grew up in Bronzeville. She now runs Miss B's Historical Community Tours. I remember the one time my mom 
one, and it was around the holiday season. It was Christmas when I was about 13, 14. And we were coming from the uh, grocery store and taking care of errands. I was running with my mom. And a neighbor came and she was calling her name. This basically said, you hit the numbers. You know, so we could get Christmas gifts and different things of that nature. So I saw the joy in her face. Like, oh, I was able to provide for my family. Yes, you can call it. It was gambling. It, it, it was criminalized and so forth. But the very people who made a living off of running these policy shops and policy wheels throughout the city were Robin Hoods. They put it back into the community. So if you wanted to trace a lot of early Black businesses in Chicago, and, and I'm talking about um, um, savings and loan places like banks or funeral parlors or mom-pa corner grocery stores, shoe shine parlors, et cetera. You could trace a lot of those early businesses to someone getting a loan <laughs> from one of these policy kings to actually create these businesses. And there were businesses that were doing very well that rivaled those stores down in the Loop and Mall where Blacks could not shop at at the time. Now, mind you, there were anti-policy laws as early as 1901. How many places in the South and West Side could you play policy and how much money was being brought in annually at the height? There were at least, I would say, between 4,200 and 4,500 policy shops throughout Chicago. Despite being illegal. Despite being illegal. You know what? It could have been Fred across the street. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's giving you those numbers. And that was even low key. Shops, you can do the barber shops, the pool hall. You know, the cleaners, whatever whatever business that was there, you knew who to go to and you never called that person's name. It was it was secretive. Now, like today, if you come to me and somebody, you know, give me some money and then I'm gonna give you mm. some money if you win, I probably look at you like, no, thank you. Right. Um, but back then it was about community. It was about trusting your neighbors, it was about supporting one another. So that was the last thing that would come on your mind. I would say on average, there was probably anywhere between, you know, 18, 19, $20 million flowing through a Black community between the South and West sides annually based on policy. And this is like the overarching story of Bronzeville at Chicago's Black Business Corridor, right? Like a closed system of, of money circulating, people taking care of each other, people putting money into the businesses. I mean, without policy, could Bronzeville have been the, the Black Mecca? There wasn't a, another economic engine driving those neighborhoods in the South and West Side. It was policy. Mm-hmm. That all came to a screeching halt around the 1970s. policy brought a probability it brought an opportunity uh that many people hadn't seen and you know then the state decides they had already criminalized policy but now they look at it and say we ain't stopping this flow of millions of dollars maybe we can get in on that what's the story of the state deciding to to take on policy and rename it essentially well it's just exactly what you said how do we get in on this money this lucrative business 
it was getting to the point where the criminal activity behind it, some of those policy kings, even here in Chicago, uh, Ted Rowe, one of the big policy kings of the time of the era, he was slain. And so you did have criminal gang activity around this for territory and for dominance of power and so forth. And when the state was trying to move in to figure out how not only to eradicate it, but how to switch it from this money going to one set, one community, one group of peoples, how do we get it? Introduce the Illinois lottery, Illinois state lottery in 1974. So think about it like this, policy. Oh, that was the, the seedy underbelly. That was dirty. That was with those people that were walking on the other side of the law. But today, it's the lottery. Everybody the Illinois knows State Lottery. Everybody loves that. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the light, airy, fun thing. We're looking at the casino conversation in Chicago right now. And you have people coming out saying, oh, maybe we shouldn't bring a casino to our neighborhoods. Did you see that type of pushback towards the idea of state sanctioned gambling? You know, where the the suburban clubs coming together, clutching their pearls saying we shouldn't do this. You did. You actually had groups, you know, pushing back. It's no different. You always had that anti group that still, you know, set on their quote unquote laurels or the morals the higher morals of society, if you will. Even still groups today that you know feel that the lottery um, is a negative thing because you do have high instances of gambling. People get caught up and lose their families, their houses, their homes, their fortune, and so forth because of that. And so you do have, just like when in the early 70s, mid 70s and so forth for that switch, you had groups that came out and thought that this was not a good idea. Mm-hmm. So around the notion of um, money that is going to come from legal forms of gambling, it's going to help fund education. That's how we sold it to people to say, okay, that's not a bad idea. So all that money, instead of going to these quote unquote hoodlums or or these people of you know these second class citizens or this, that, and the other, or or this criminal element, why don't we do some quote unquote good with it? We're going to use this to subsidize schools. So people started to say, "Okay, well, that sounds about right. Is there anything we can learn from when policy became the lottery to prepare us as we move into this next wave of gambling in our city? The past couple of years, as we've been dealing with the pandemic and you have all of these major, I mean, major sporting, professional sports, college sports that were canceled. There was a lot of gambling houses that lost a good amount of money between 2019 and 2020. This past year, you see more gambling commercials and gambling apps and opportunities than you've ever seen before. We're going to make it easier for you to gamble. Just pick up your phone. Do it on your phone. You don't have to walk into a store. You don't have to walk to these offsite gambling places that have horse racing. But you can literally do it from the confines and the comfort of your own home, picking up your phone. So psychologically, you're thinking about, well, what would this particular casino in this particular area mean, not only for the economic impact that it's going to create? And there are positives to it. It will create new jobs. It will create new opportunities and so forth. But there's also negatives to it, the reality of it. I mean, there are uh, statistics where casinos come in particular areas and um, petty and minor crime goes up. So those same conversations that are going on now in in the city of Chicago, 
were the same conversations in the mid 70s when they were talking about you know eliminating policy. I think some of the top 10, you know, neighborhoods or zip codes that play the lottery are like black neighborhoods you know, exactly. that may have not seen the windfall of investment from these three hundred and ninety million dollar Powerballs. And, you know, we're constantly reading about people going bankrupt after winning. Like, you know, do we know enough to say that it's been worth it over the last, what, 50 years? Put it to you this way. I would say we know enough. But is it enough for it to stop? No. Because the reality of it is, as long as there is a, a wage gap and an economic gap within certain communities, particularly in America, it's seen as an opportunity. It's seen as this one thing, this one $2, this one $5 could literally change my life. As a matter of fact, I remember about five, six years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, um, people within our community were talking about the lottery as quote unquote, Black man's retirement policy, because this is an opportunity. I, I don't have a 401k. I don't have a, um, a IRA. This is, look, I know I'm going to be working until they, they put me in the ground. But if I could just win this lottery, then I would be set. My family would be set. Did anything change in Bronzeville in the decade after the creation of the lottery that that money dry up very quickly in the neighborhood? The money dried up almost, it seemed to be overnight. Like I said, you had an economic engine that was funding, funding and bankrolling small businesses and so forth, which were the pillar of the community at the time. When that money ceased to exist, you went right back to the situation of no money coming back into the community. So that, along with other systemic, you know, racial, white supremacist, you know, attitudes and so forth, definitely led to the demise of the Black metropolis. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. Governor Pritzker announced Tuesday that masks will no longer be required on public transit after a federal judge in Florida ruled against the federal mask mandate on planes and public transit. Uber, Lyft, and Amtrak have moved to mask optional. Alder Pat Dow in the third ward joins Alder Byron Sigcho Lopez in the 25th in opposing the current casino bids in their respective wards. That leaves Alderman Walter Burnett in the 27th, who says he's still listening to community members about the Bally's River West proposal. And some good news to get you through. It's 420, meaning there are dozens of public and private events for you to get your safe celebrating on. One to check out is Ravenswood Munch March. It's going to be apps, drinks, and desserts. I got a link for you in the show notes. For other 420 events, subscribe to our daily newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm. As always, I appreciate you for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Peace. I threw myself off by actually getting it right. <laughs>